Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs. I am an instructional coach, PhD candidate at Utah State University, and hopefully one day a PhD graduate. And I'm someone who cares very much about reading. The Teaching Literacy Podcast is a place where we work to bridge literacy research with classroom instruction with the end goal of uh, with the end goal of supporting all readers within our classroom. If you are new to today's show, welcome. I'm glad to have you here for the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and I hope what you listen to today you find informative and valuable for your classroom instruction. If you've been with us for a while, thanks for coming back. The best way that you can help support this show is to first share it with a colleague. Sharing with a colleague is a super easy thing to do. You can just say, hey, I listened to this great episode on reading comprehension. I'll email you the link. You can also leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. That's a great way for people who are looking for quality podcasts that are talking about how to teach kids how to read and write, that they will be able to find this particular podcast. So share it with a colleague and leave a rating in Apple Podcasts, and you'd be doing me a great huge favor and keep this show going indefinitely. So let's talk about today's show. Today is what I'm thinking is part one of a multi-part mini-series talking specifically about reading comprehension. You may have asked yourself, how do I teach reading comprehension? It's very complex. It's very intertwined. And there's a lot of very loud voices out there on what best practices are for teaching reading comprehension. What I want to do with this three-part series is I want to give a historical overview of, of how reading comprehension thought has evolved over time. And we can see these strands within our instruction today and within our curriculum today. And specifically thinking about what is the cutting edge? What is the bleeding edge of what we know about reading comprehension research? Spoiler alert, it might be different than what you think. Uh, I would say even hidden in plain sight. So this specific episode, part one, we're going to talk about a historical look at reading comprehension. So we'll talk about schema theory, uh, the simple view of reading, and Scarborough's reading rope. Those are probably three theories that you are at least familiar with or have heard. And then the next episode, I do want to talk about that bleeding edge or where the research is right now. And uh, that's called the construction integration model developed by Walter Kinch. And once you learn about construction integration, you will see it everywhere. So that's a show you're not going to want to miss. And then in part three, I want to talk about reading strategies specifically. Reading strategies have been very popular over the last two decades. Uh, lately, though, I feel they've been receiving a lot of criticism, a lot of heavy criticism, and perhaps some of that is certainly due, but I want to talk about what does the research say on reading comprehension strategy instruction, and what does that mean for our classroom practice? So that's an overlay of the three-part series. Uh, today, specifically, let's get into what is reading comprehension, and how has reading comprehension been looked at over time? So I'm going to specifically talk about three theoretical models, and a theoretical model is a way that we perceive that a certain process is working. And so specifically with reading comprehension, it's how do we think the brain is processing? How do we think that the brain is doing this thing called reading comprehension? And I, I love talking about theoretical models because they do give us that working definition that we can make decisions off of our classroom based on what science and research is telling us. Uh, there's this great quote by Norman J. Unrau and his colleagues, Donna Alverman and Misty Sailors, and, and I'll, this reference will, of course, be in the, in, the, in the show notes. But they talk about the value of theoretical models. They say this, Theory and theoretical models have the power to cast both light and shadow on our understanding of literacies. 
they exercise their powers not absolutely, but on a continuum of degrees of illumination. So a theory's power to illuminate can rise or fall depending on our capacity to grasp a particular theory or model, its individual components, their interactions, and potential outcomes of those interactions, and the degree of relevance to the contents we've applied it. There's a lot to that paragraph, but I love how they're talking about how a theoretical model casts both light and shadow. That it helps us see some parts of reading comprehension very clearly, but there's other parts that are still lurking in the shadows. So when we're thinking about a theoretical model, we have to embrace that no theoretical model is going to capture the entire process, but they each cast different lights and shadows. So as we're talking sort of this historical trajectory of reading comprehension, I want you to be watching for where is the light and where is the shadow with each of these models. So without further ado, let's get to the first segment I want to talk about, and that is schema theory. First up, let's talk about schema theory. The primary researcher associated with schema theory is Dr. Richard C. Anderson. And what schema theory advocates is that comprehension occurs when the message that's within a text can connect with a reader's own schema. And we're thinking about schema as being the organized knowledge of people, places, and things. And it, and it can be very specific. It can be very abstract. It can be very narrow and very broad. There's different dimensions of schema, but schema is one's organized knowledge. And so this work by Dr. Anderson advocates that the process of using schema to comprehend text happens through some sort of cutting and fitting process. So for example, if I'm reading a text about some cousins who are fly fishing at the river during summer vacation, that each of my schema around, or each of my schemata around each of those areas of fly fishing and cousins and summer break, I can cut and fit some sort of working knowledge of what this text is saying. And so obviously there, the more schema a reader has, the better able they are going to be able to read a text. So let's talk about why schema theory matters. Let's talk about the light that it casts. The first thing is that schema theory advocates very strongly that the reader plays a very big part in reading comprehension. And that is a fact that I think any literacy research you would talk with this year in, in 2020 and 2021 would agree that, yeah, what the reader brings to the table matters quite a bit. The reason why schema theory in its time, and we're talking about mid-1980s here, the reason schema theory was so revolutionary in its time is if we look at how text comprehension was thought about before schema theory, it, it, it's a radical difference. So before schema theory, text comprehension was sort of thought that each individual word had its own meaning and that the reader would string together these words that each had their own individual meaning. And it was through this sort of aggregate, aggregate amount of words within a text, each with their own individual meaning, that you would have some sort of broadening. So it was very text-centric, and it did not allow for you know different interpretations or anything that the reader brings to the table, that there was one sort of true meaning of the text and that resided in the text itself. And then schema theory comes along and says, well, wait a minute, actually what the reader brings to the text matters a lot. That if a reader doesn't have a schema on fly fishing or on summer break, it's gonna be really hard for them to understand a text talking about fly fishing in the river in the summer. So one implication of that can be how different interpretations of a text is even possible in the first place. I want to take this passage that is um, in a chapter by Richard C. Anderson called The Role of Reader Schema. It's a, it's a reprint uh, in the 2019 
edition of Theoretical Models and Processes of Literacy. And uh, let's, let, let's see how background knowledge influences our understanding of this passage. Tony slowly got up from the mat, planning his escape. He hesitated a moment and thought. Things were not going well. What bothered him was being held, especially since the charge against him had been weak. He considered his present situation. The lock that held him was strong, but he thought he could break it. He knew, however, that his timing would have to be perfect. Tony was aware that it was because of his early roughness that he had been penalized so severely, much too severely from his point of view. The situation was becoming frustrating. The pressure had been grinding on him for too long. He was being ridden unmercifully. Tony was getting angry now. He felt he was ready to make his move. He knew that his success or failure would depend on what he did in the next few seconds. When I first read this passage two years ago, I thought it was very first talking about a prison escape, that Tony has been in prison, he was, he was rough early on, and he's, he's being held in, in probably solitary confinement, and he's plotting his way to get out of the prison. And perhaps your interpretation of that text was like mine. You thought that it was about some sort of prison or jail escape. And indeed, the majority of readers that uh, Dr. Anderson used with that passage agreed. They thought that it was about, about prison escape. However, there was one specific population of people that did not think it was about a prison escape. People with a background in the sport of wrestling concluded that this was actually a passage about a wrestling match and that the lock was not like a locking key physical mechanical lock, but it was a wrestling type lock or a type of hold where one wrestler has another wrestler um, locked. And so I don't have a huge background in the sport of wrestling, but once in the next paragraph I read that it was a passage about wrestling, immediately, oh, yeah, that actually makes a little bit more sense. What that passage shows is that we can have different interpretations of the text depending on our background, and also, perhaps more importantly, and also very importantly, that sometimes we don't automatically activate that background all on our own. That if someone would have said, hey, here's a passage on wrestling, um, you know, read it, I would go immediately thinking about wrestling, but when I'm left to my own devices, I'm sort of using that, that cutting and fitting method, and it's, I think it's talking about a prison, but it isn't actually super clear um, how it refers to as a prison, but it's much clearer when you are thinking about it through a wrestling lens. So that's the major light that schema theory casts, is that the background knowledge that a reader have matters quite a bit, and the second area of light that it casts is it also highlights the role of inferencing. Now, both of these roles background knowledge and inferencing are going to play a huge role and we get to next episode where we talk about construction integration, but I want to highlight it right now. In a text, no author can be completely explicit with what they are trying to convey. There's always going to be some sort of inferencing that is left up to the reader. So take the following sentence. The big number 37 smashed the ball over the fence. If you are like me, you probably assumed that that sentence is talking about baseball that there is a, a player, his, his jersey number is 37, and he just hit a home run and scoring points for his team. Uh, that's an inference that you and I are making that is probably pretty correct. They don't, they don't actually identify whether that is a, a sentence about baseball or not. But the point is, is that you and I made an inference based on things that we knew to conclude that that's talking about baseball. When readers read, they are making dozens of inferences Hundreds. Of, when, when readers read, we make inferences all the time. Even sentence by sentence, we are having to make tiny, tiny little inferences that are helping contribute to our understanding of the text. 
And that's a proposition that schema theory really brought to the foreground that that didn't really that that wasn't really present in the same way before schema theory. That's the light that schema theory casts. Now let's talk about the shadows that it casts or some of its limitations. The first one is a, a major limitation, in my opinion, of schema theory, and it doesn't really account for the text processing aspect of reading. We know that when we're reading that, you know, the eyes are tracking words across the page and there are things like phonemic awareness, phonological processing, alphabetic principle that matter quite a bit with how a reader understands the text. That a reader with weaker phonological processing is probably going to struggle a bit more in text. Or that a student who has very efficient text processing and can read very fluently, very accurately, and with great prosody, that their chances of, of understanding a text are going to be much higher. And what schema theory does is it kind of holds those all at a given. It's, it's saying that if these things are happening, if, if these sort of bottom-up text processing parts of reading are happening, here's what we know about how this, the schema is working, um, about how the schema influences the reader's understanding of the text. And so... Um, it certainly explains one half of the coin, I think, very well, but the other half of the coin, it, it doesn't really address at all, which is something we should consider. That is a shadow of schema theory. The next limitation of schema theory is that it accounts for how we understand a text that we read, but my read of schema theory is that it doesn't really account for how we build knowledge through reading or how we can learn new things that, you know, schema theory says that we understand a text when we can recall previous schema that we've already had, but it doesn't really account for how we can use that schema in order to build new knowledge, how to create new schema. And there might, you know, through that cutting and fitting process and inferencing, you know, that, that, that could be where it sort of is advocating that that could happen. But my read of the schema theory research is that it doesn't really make that clear. And that's important because a major part of the Common Core State Standards is reading complex texts and is building knowledge through texts. And so if we're looking at our classroom instruction through just a schema theory lens, we might be missing out on parts of how we can actually build knowledge through reading. And that sort of dovetails into my third shadow of schema theory, and it's an instructional implication. Now, this is a, this is a, a classroom practice that both P. David Pearson has, has, has expressed some concern over, and uh, D. Ray Reitzel in our conversation back like episode four and five, he talked about that a little bit too. But schema theory at times, I'm not going to do broad strokes and say this is across the board because obviously I don't know every single classroom in the United States or in, across the world, but there's enough of a trend to concern these influential researchers of extreme front-loading. And D. Ray Reitzel uses the example that if we're reading a text about spiders, one instructional implication of schema theory is that teachers have gone and taught everything there is to teach about spiders before reading the text about spiders. And yes, the students understood that text great, um, but it was because that the teacher had loaded it all up. It doesn't provide, again, relate to that second point of how we can actually build knowledge through text comprehension. So this gets a little bit slippery because I don't, I'm never going to advocate that we should um, not provide our students with background knowledge because it is such a major key in how we understand text. However, I think the question of when we provide background knowledge and how much we provide background knowledge and the type of background knowledge that we provide are very interesting questions that we should ask ourselves. And I think once again, once we get to, once we get to construction integration in the next episode, that some of those will become a little bit clearer of, of how 
background knowledge and, and front loading and, and can actually relate to this larger theory of comprehension where we are building knowledge through text. So that's an overview of schema theory. Next, let's talk about the simple view of reading. And the major authors associated with the simple view of reading is Go and Tunmer, specifically their publication in 1986. And what the simple view of reading advocates is that if we want to think about reading comprehension, we can do that in a very simple fashion, that we can think that reading comprehension has two aspects. There is a decoding aspect and there is a linguistic comprehension aspect. And so reading comprehension can be thought of as decoding times linguistic comprehension equals text comprehension equals reading comprehension. And so there's a, a cake analogy that I'm going to use for, uh, for the simple view of reading and then also for the reading rope because I think it helps show what they, what they do allow for here. So with the simple view of reading, if, if, if you and I were baking a cake and we're in the kitchen together, the simple view of reading would say, well, if you, if you want to bake a cake, if you want to have this beautiful chocolate cake baked, you're going to have some wet ingredients, you're going to have some dry ingredients, and if you, if you take those ingredients and put them together, you can make a cake. The power of the simple view of reading is its simplicity, where it talks about that there's really two, at its most broad level, there's two areas we have to think about if we're going to have comprehension, decoding and linguistic comprehension. And so part of that decoding aspect would be things like concepts of print, phonological awareness, phonological processing, alphabetic principle, fluency, everything that it takes to sort of to take get the print bottom up to the brain would be, I my read of it would be classified under that decoding category. And then there's the linguistic comprehension category, which early on they defined as, um, you know, the semantics at the word level. But I, I, I feel that newer sort of updated versions of it have expanded that to other areas of, of comprehension as well. But the power of the simple view of reading or the light that it casts is that it breaks down comprehension to something that's very simple. If I had one minute to explain to someone how reading comprehension works, I would probably start with a simple view of reading because I can because of how clearly and efficiently it can be communicated. The second major thing, or the second major area of light that I feel the simple view of reading casts is it strikes more of a balance between bottom-up and top-down thought around reading comprehension. So, like, for example, the schema theory that we just talked about is, is almost entirely top-down, or it's, it's what is the reader bringing to the text. But the uh, simple view of reading also has some bottom-up aspects where it's saying actually the the text matters a bit too and how the reader processes that text. So it strikes a balance with the pendulum of, of sort of trying to center it a, a bit more in a way that schema theory perhaps didn't quite do. Another major strength of the simple view of reading is that it's very commonly used in, in research, you know, even 35 years later. I've seen it cited and talked about in, you know, theses from classroom teachers doing a master's degree, all the way up to big heavy hitter researchers that are publishing in, in reading research quarterly and, and everything in between. And so part of the how the, the simple view of reading has endured, I think, is because it provides that simple, uh, uh, simple, right? That, that simple, efficient way to think about reading comprehension. Also, another strength of it with, with its communicability is that it's really frequently invoked by practitioners that very often I see it talked about on Twitter uh, and usually associated with the science of reading hashtag. And uh, to me, that shows that 
here we have an area where researchers and practitioners are speaking the same language, where researchers can be talking about the simple view of reading and practitioners are talking about the simple view of reading. And um, that shows that this particular model has a lot of traction. And I think that's a, I think that's a good thing. Um, however, there are some shadows that the simple view of reading casts, areas that it doesn't quite illuminate very well. So going back to my cake example, if you've ever baked a cake and you know that there's wet ingredients and there's dry ingredients, uh, you know that if you're going to actually bake a cake, you're going to need a bit more specificity than that. That the wet ingredients can include eggs and oil and vanilla and that the dry ingredients can include flour and baking soda and, and sugar and chocolate, you know, cocoa powder. You're going to have to bit more, you have a bit more direction than that. And this is an area where its greatest strength is perhaps also its greatest weakness. And the, the authors of it, there's, a, there's an article by Tumner in 2018, and he's one of the original, and Tumner is one of the original authors of The Simple View of Reading, where Tumner and his colleague talk about that the simple view of reading was really meant to be just a macro level theory to begin with. At its most broad level, what constructs does reading comprehension entail? It wasn't meant to be this, this nitty gritty, what does the individual trees look like in the forest? And so that lets us know that the simple view of reading is, is going to give us a good bearing on the compass. It's going to tell us which direction we need to be heading. But we are going to need models that have a great deal more specificity if, if we're going to know exactly what to teach and how to teach it with developing great readers. And another, and this isn't a, actually a limitation of the simple view of reading, but it's one way that it's been um, applied to practice recently that is concerning. Uh, this is something that uh, Dr. Gina Cervetti and her colleagues talk about in the special edition of Re Reading Research Quarterly on the simple view of reading, but they talk and they specifically mention Emily Hanford, which you, you may or may not be familiar with, but that there's there's some people out there that are saying that with the simple view of reading that, you know, linguistic comprehension, that's the natural part of comprehension. That's the part that we just get through talking with other people. Decoding is the unnatural part. So therefore, all of our instructions should be focused around that decoding element, and we don't need to focus on the comprehension aspect. And that's concerning because there are actually instructional things that we can do for comprehension to promote it, that we can't just rely on the decoding aspect of our instruction in order to create great readers. We have to tend to both sides of that coin. So that's not necessarily a weakness of the theory itself, but it is a weakness of how some people with a lot of influence have been able to interpret it and, and perhaps misapply it into practice. Another, another shadow that it casts, or another limitation of this model, deals with how it's presented, and it's presented in the fact of a multiplication equation, right? Decoding times linguistic comprehension equals text comprehension. And, and stick with me on this. I know we're literacy people, but stick with me on this math idea. So one thing that that model perhaps implies is this idea of compensation, right? Let's, let's, think, about, um, let's think about factors for a minute. So if, if we want 100 on text comprehension and 100 on whatever you know, metric you want to choose, just 100, 100 on text comprehension, if we have a 10 on our decoding ability and a, and a 10 on our linguistic ability, then we would have 100. But let's say our decoding ability is at a 2. What the simple view of reading ad, or it implies, at least, I don't know if it explicitly advocates for, but it implies is that if our decoding abilities are 2, we can, we can compensate for that with a linguistic ability that's at a 50. And, that, uh, and we can still have the equal amount of text comprehension. And while there is certainly some amounts of compensation that can happen, that strengths in one area can, can help sort of bootstrap or bolster weaknesses in another area, 
Um, there are limitations for that. There's, there's a floor and a ceiling effect of to the degree to which compensation can happen. And I, 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 would, I don't want our instruction to say, oh, well, this, this you know, student has, they're just a wee, little bit weaker in comprehension, so I'm just going to give them more decoding practice in order to help compensate for that. Um, that's one perhaps implication that I think might be misapplied in, in some areas. Another one, again, with how it's presented as a math equation, is that the simple view of reading indicates or it implies this, this sort of linear growth of reading achievement, this sort of rise over run fashion, um, that, there's, that there's going to be a positive slope that, that will increase in a predictable fashion in the way that we the decoding ability increases or the comprehension ability increases. And that's actually not the case. There's a great deal of, of language research out there that shows that there's sort of these periods of accelerated language improvement with developing young humans, and then that that language ability can kind of taper off a little bit and then accelerate again. And so, you know, language, uh, the development of language in and of itself is not this this linear thing. And so that, so that kind of complicates that. But there's also some, some a great study by uh, John Sabatini and his colleagues that they published in uh, either 2019 or 2017, I get two of his publications uh, mixed up. Uh, John Sabatini, he works for Educational Testing Services. He's had some great publications in the last five, six years that I, th I think are very important. But this particular one uh, shows that there might actually be this decoding threshold that below a certain level of decoding, that comprehension just isn't going to happen. And I think that's something that most experienced classroom teachers would heartily agree with that if decoding isn't happening, that it, it doesn't matter what linguistic comprehension the student has, text comprehension is, is not going to happen. And so their model actually shows that the simple view of reading is not this linear rise over run, super predictable uh, progression, but that it's actually curvilinear, that, that, that it's, it sort of goes in this S-curve fashion where there's a decoding threshold, there's this floor effect, and then after that it does go a bit more predictably, but then there might even be a ceiling effect past which more decoding isn't going to help a, uh, a certain individual comprehend a text. So I hope that didn't go too far off into the weeds, but um, I, I do want to say I, I like the simple view of reading. Um, but its its strength in that it's very clearly communicable is also part of its weakness in the fact that there's a lot more going on that at, at, at its most macro level that the simple view reading just doesn't quite account for. And last but not least, let's talk about the reading rope. The major researcher associated with the reading rope is uh, Hollis Scarborough. And the, the citation that I've seen most often is from the 2002 version of the Handbook of Early Literacy Research. And Dr. Scarborough wrote a chapter called Connecting Early Language and Literacy to Later Reading Disabilities, Evidence, Theory, and Practice. So with the reading rope, the reading rope goes a step beyond the simple view of reading. And it advocates, it still says that there's that, that, that reading is, is like a rope in the fact that there's multiple individual components, and these components weave together in the same way that a rope might weave together. And so one major thread would be the language comprehension thread in a way similar to SVR, simple view of reading. And another one would be the word recognition thread, which could be akin to the decoding aspect of the simple view of reading. And so within each of those major strands, you have, uh, you have smaller strands, such as background knowledge or vocabulary, language structures, verbal reasoning, literacy knowledge, phonological awareness, decoding, sight recognition are all threads within Scarborough's reading rope. And that as these threads read together, weave together, you have skilled reading. 
uh, which Dr. Scarborough defines as the fluent execution and coordination of word recognition and text comprehension. So it still very much echoes what the simple view of reading talks about, but it does go, uh, it does offer more of the ingredients than SVR says. So if we're going with our cake example, uh, where the, the SVR, simple view of reading, says there's wet ingredients and there's dry ingredients and you can bake those together and make a cake, the, the reading rope says that you have wet ingredients and the wet ingredients is eggs and vanilla and oil and butter and the dry ingredients. You have dry ingredients as well and those are flour and soda, ba flour and baking soda and, and sugar and salt. And that as we mix those two together, we can bake a cake. So the work that the reading rope came out of was in 1998, Scarborough and colleagues did a, a meta-analysis of, of longitudinal data of earlier factors that would predict future uh, reading achievement scores. And they, they sort of broke them up into those, those two major areas of measures of processing of print and then measures of oral language proficiency. And they also measured some, some nonverbal abilities like IQ and visual discrimination and, and visual motor integration. Oh, and excuse me, it wasn't Scarborough and colleagues, it was just Scarborough. Now, I really like the reading rope because it casts light in a few major areas. The first one is that all the ingredients are on the board now. With the with back with with schema with schema theory, it was really just hey, if we're gonna bake a cake, we, we've got to have flour. SVR was like there's wet ingredients, there's dry ingredients, but but now with the reading rope, it sort of shows that there's actually lots of different ingredients and they're going to play different roles in our end goal of baking a cake. And I think that's a really important very visual, very concrete example for us to grab. The next thing that I think is a major strength of the reading rope is that with a rope, it's the, in the integrity of the rope depends on all the individual threads, but in the end, it's the rope that matters. And that's what I think the reading rope is trying to convey is that, you know, there, there might be a little bit of weakness in one particular area, but that if that thread is still intact, that the overall integrity of the rope uh, could also still be there as well. And, and that I think is, is very important for us, that as, as literacy teachers, we do need to attend to each of those individual areas, but we cannot forget that our end goal is the rope. Our end goal is reading comprehension and everything we're doing, whether we're working everything from you know, print awareness all the way up to, to fluency and, and reading strategies, all of that is building towards helping our students comprehend the text. I think that's a major strength of the reading rope. Now let's talk about some of the shadows it casts. And the, the shadows it casts, I think are pretty interesting. The first one is that while it puts all the ingredients on the board, it doesn't necessarily dictate which ingredients are more important or more foundational than others, or which ones are need a bigger dosage or a smaller dosage. It just sort of says, here's all the ingredients, but it doesn't tell us how much of each ingredient. And it doesn't really tell us when of each ingredient. It just says that if we're predicting future reading outcomes, these are the things that matters. And I think that's really important for us because when we are, when we're teaching our language arts, when we're teaching reading to students, we're doing that within a, a, a time schedule that we have a set amount of time every day to be teaching reading. And that's, you know, kindergarten all the way up through, all the way up through the rest of high school that the language arts block is a specific time. And so if, if I have a language arts block that's 75 minutes, I need to know 
which things I need to attend to more than others, deeper than others, in order to make sure that I'm helping to produce the most skilled readers that I can, right? I want to be spending time on the flour and the eggs and not as much time on the salt and the baking soda. I don't, I don't want to have three cups of salt in there. I just want to have a pinch. And the reading rope, and if you look at the meta-analysis, it, it, you know, it, it, I think it does help illuminate a little bit of that. But the model in, in and of itself um, says the ingredients, but it does not say how much to do ingredient or when each, each ingredient matters. The next area of the reading rope that I, I think is a shadow that it casts or a limitation or area that's not quite perfectly clear, and this is an interesting one, is that um, unlike the simple view of reading, I think reading researchers and literacy teachers are having different conversations around comprehension with regards to the reading rope. Uh, SVR, simple view of reading, I see that one cited, like I said, cited very often by researchers. I also see it invoked a lot by classroom teachers as well. But I don't see the reading rope cited very much by reading researchers. And that's a question I have that I want to learn more about because I don't know if I have a great answer right now. But what it does show me is that perhaps literacy researchers and literacy teachers are having a different conversation here where literacy teachers, they have this great model that shows all of these different ingredients, these different threads of a rope that make reading. And perhaps that's something that's really concrete for most uh, literacy teachers. But as far as reading researchers go, um, this isn't a model that's invoked to describe new reading research very much. It's not one that's used to describe how do we understand reading comprehension. Uh, for example, I have a 600-page book called the called Theoretical Models and Processes in Literacy, um, and in it, I can only find uh, Scarborough and the Reading Rope cited once by by Nell Duke, and it's it's a very passing mention. And so the 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 Reading Rope doesn't I don't see it having that much traction within the academic within the reading research community. Now, now that doesn't mean that it is a poor model. It doesn't mean that it's an inaccurate model. It just means that literacy teachers and literacy researchers are having a different conversation here. And I think that's something that we should pay attention to. So in conclusion, we have talked about schema theory. We've talked about the simple view of reading. We have talked about the reading rope. And I hope you can see the different light and shadows that these that these different theories cast. And, and perhaps you can look into your own reading instruction or your own reading curriculum and see which elements might be more, you know, where are these different elements of your curriculum pulling from? Uh, the next episode I want to talk about is my pick of a theoretical model of literacy, of how the brain comprehends text. Uh, it's one that I see cited very often by reading researchers. It's one that also is very well empirically validated. There's a, there's a lot of good and, and ongoing research around this one. And it's also one that once we sort of peek back behind the curtain, we see this particular model playing a major role in how instruction is occurring today, which is something I think very much we should, we should pay attention to, that this is almost the invisible hand that's shaping the world around us. But a lot of us don't see how this one particular theory of reading is is has influenced so much of what we're trying to do every day within the classroom. So stay tuned. The next episode, we're going to talk about the construction integration model. Um, 
and the major researcher associated with that is Dr. Walter Kinch. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best thing you can do uh, to help support the show is to share it with a friend or to uh, subscribe to this podcast or share a or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you for your time. I hope you found this time productive. And until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.